Welcome to the Cover 2 Resources podcast series, a podcast series about addiction and addiction education. Our mission is to arm others with the knowledge needed to best support a loved one struggling with opioid addiction. This podcast is available on iTunes, Google Music, Stitcher, and via RSS feed. Simply search for the full name, Cover 2 Resources, on your platform of choice. Thank you for listening. Hi, this is Greg McNeil from Cover 2 Resources. We've profiled many programs on our series that are designed to get people into treatment for substance use disorder. We've done episodes on quick response teams in Coleraine, Ohio, the DART program in Toledo, the Perry program from Gloucester, Massachusetts, Safe Stations in Manchester, New Hampshire, Anchor ED in Providence, Rhode Island. All of these programs involve helping get people into treatment. Today, we'll talk about a different program known as LEAD, that begins before someone is ready for treatment. The Law Enforcement Assisted Diversion Program, or LEAD, initiative allows police officers to utilize discretion to divert low-level, nonviolent offenders whose offense is driven by problematic substance use, mental illness, homelessness, or poverty away from the criminal justice system. We begin this podcast with a portion of the recorded Seattle LEAD team meeting with a participant in their program. Let me start. <laughs> You've been up to Jay? Um, it's been real busy. I have a full-time job now. I'm a, a senior cook at uh, Seattle University for the Bon Appetit Management Company. Um, I'm, believe it or not, I'm the shop steward for the union. I'm the union rep. I love it. <laughs> um, I'm not surprised. I mean, you forget, I spent seven years in the Marine Corps. Right. I was on the poster. <laughs> I was a recruiter. I didn't start using drugs till I was 30 years old. I had the job at Nordstrom's making $75,000 a year selling real estate, you know, been around the world, had a condo downtown. What changed for you? I think it was one of the times I came back home and um, I was on the bed downstairs and my little girl was bouncing on the bed and and she goes, Daddy, why do you go to the streets? I I almost start crying. I said, Daddy's got issues. And she goes, it's okay, I still love you. And I knew right then, you know what, I gotta change. Mm If there wasn't lead, what do you think would have happened? It was a safe zone. If I had an appointment at 3 o'clock and it was 2.15, I had 45 minutes right. to spare. Man, that's too much time, dog. That's way too much time for someone early in early sobriety. I can, you know, I can get in here and by the time they kicked me out of the office, I had 15 minutes to get to my appointment and I was safe. But the only way I was able to get that safe zone was to build up a relationship with not just Tim, but the people that work in the office also. The ones that had computer classes, the one that had um, art classes, reading classes, note classes. There's a lot of things that the LEAD program does to fill up that time to figure out what it is you want. You know, you you get stuck doing drugs so long, you don't know what it is you want. Joining me today to introduce the LEAD initiative is Chief Brendan Cox, the Director of Policing Strategies for the LEAD National Support Bureau. Chief Cox begins by talking about how the diversion part of the program begins. So the discretion comes into play for the officer to say, okay, I have this individual in front of me. They've committed a crime. I have an option now. I can either arrest this person and put him in the system as usual, where I can either think that that I'm going to, you know, do the same thing over and over again and get a different result, which is the definition of insanity, or I can do something different. And the question is, is what is that different thing? So folks recognize that the, the, the initial concept of lead was, okay, we have to give the officer something different to do because that discretion is already there, but we have to be able to give the officers a concrete way to get this person help. 
so that things do change. So that was the first concept was we're going to utilize officer's discretion. That discretion exists. And on top of that, we also know that officers, officers already are aware of the folks that are on their beat. You know, when officers out walking a beat or they're in the patrol car, they're very aware of individuals within the community that they serve. They're very aware of individuals in the community they serve, what their needs are. They're aware of the folks that are actually out there traumatizing people, and they're also aware of the individuals that are out there being traumatized. So they know the difference between somebody who's out there um, preying on individuals as compared to somebody who's out there that truly needs help, that has an addiction, that has mental illness, that, that, that the criminal justice system is not going to solve. So that's on the officer level. Using that discretion, using that knowledge of the individuals that they serve, and being able to use that to do something different. So then you have to build, well, what's different? So, so for the folks from LEAD and from Seattle, what, they, what was different was to look at saying, okay, how can we obtain services? How can we get somebody the help they need? And where are the folks at um, that we're looking to serve? So one of the things that the folks in Seattle had had a lot of um, success with was a harm reduction philosophy. When I talk about a harm reduction philosophy, I'm talking about approaching an individual um, to get them help from the sense of a very um, self-centered um, approach of meeting somebody where they're at, um, help, having them help identify what their needs are, um, not mandating services necessarily, but helping them identify the things that would help make their life better, building trust and relationship with the participants, um, and ultimately working with that individual until they're to the point where you're really improving their life and you're able to ultimately address what the underlying issue is so that if somebody has a substance abuse disorder, well, the first moment you meet them, they may not be ready for treatment. Um, there are many people out there that the moment you mention um, getting into drug treatment, they will run the other way. So rather than make drug treatment be the highlight of what our, our help is going to be, let's make harm reduction the highlight of it is. And harm reduction is all about reducing the harm surrounding what that behavior is. Next, Chief Cox talks about the focus of the program, a broadly defined version of harm reduction. So in a harm reduction mode, the, the, the case managers, when they meet with the individual who's been referred, they really sit down with them and they really have a good conversation and they really engage with the individual around what that individual has going on in their life, what it is the individual feels they need to make their life better and start really building on goals to make that person's life better. So if the person says, well, I need housing, well, they're going to address what their housing needs are. If the person says, I need employment, they start identifying what the employment needs are. Most of the people we deal with don't even have identification. So the first thing we're going to deal with is identification. We also know that things like treatment aren't available necessarily on demand. So if we all of a sudden start just focusing on a treatment end, and again, not that we don't want people to get treatment, but if we focus on one thing and it's one thing only of treatment, we know folks are going to bow out because we know that there's a number of people that aren't ready, willing, or able for treatment. So in a harm reduction philosophy, we know when we build and establish those relationships and that person is ready for that change, we have already built them, given them the support system they need to, to get them to the point that they're going to be more successful. The chief notes many who participate in the abstinence-based programs end up relapsing 
and their participation in the program ends at that point. We want to keep people alive. We want to make people healthy. But we're, we know that with many of the other programs, as soon as you start testing or as soon as you start requiring abstinence, you ultimately wind up having to remove folks from programs, which means they also then lose services, which means that they're right back at square one, which means they're right back on the street. They're no longer getting any services. They're no longer getting help. They're winding up back in jail. So ultimately, we're working with individuals um, at all levels, and we're recognizing that um, we're going to make this as easy as possible for the individual, recognizing that if we... If we already have all these other, I shouldn't say all these other programs, but there's other programs that require abstinence, like drug court, mm-hmm. and drug court works for individuals, Yep. and there's many people that do awesome in drug court, which is great, Yeah. but there's I've also a lot that. of other people that don't. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and it's great. You do. I mean, you see folks go through drug court, they graduate, they do really well, and that's great, but there's also a lot of people that fail out of drug court. Yeah. So what about those folks? So, you know, we're really looking at the fact that if we deal with frontal harm reduction uh, point of view and we reduce the harms of their behavior and we don't require abstinence and we don't remove people from our program because they're not ready, willing, or able to stop using at that point, then we're ultimately going to be able to provide services and provide help for those individuals that would have failed out of all the other programs and are in fact a lot of the people that many police officers are dealing with every day on the street anyways. So we want to make sure that we can engage with those individuals. Their experience with the syringe exchange in Seattle inspired an important aspect of the LEAD program to be developed. So the folks that had worked the syringe exchange programs realized that was them, um, that folks using drugs were turning to. So they, that was one of the reasons why they came with this harm reduction approach, because they said, you know, we built relationships with people that lasted, where people came to us who we never thought would want help, who eventually came in and said, yes, this is the kind of help we want can you help get us that? And they were able to, to get them that long lasting help that made that long lasting change, you know, cause we don't want just, I mean, change is never going to happen overnight. Change takes a long time. Um, and not only does change take a long time, but if we want long lasting change, um, then ultimately we're going to need to build those, um, lasting relationships with people. Cause otherwise, um, you know, relapse is very, very un- unfortunately part of the, of the process. Next, the chief goes into detail about the options to arrest. So the officer in a typical scenario is they're going to, let's say it's a, it's a street-level stop. They stop somebody, they're in possession of drugs. Um, that officer then has that ability to say, okay, instead of arresting this individual, I can offer them help. They're going to say to the individual, listen, instead of just making a normal arrest, we have, uh, I have the ability to get you some help. I can call a case manager to the scene. They can help get you some services. Um, is that something you're interested in? You know, what do you've got going on in your life? And, you know, I mean, people talk to officers, you know, no matter how many people out there, I think no one talks to cops. They talk to cops all the time. They tell cops their problems all the time. You know, we're, we, in many ways, cops are social workers. We get told people's problems from A to Z. Um, so somebody starts telling us, you know, Hey, I'm having a problem with housing. I'm having a problem with something else. So, you know, the officer is able to say, well, I happen to have some resources that can come out and help you out. So an individual says, yes, I'd like to get some help. Um, so as soon as that person says that, the officer says, all right, instead of arresting you today, I'm going to make a call. They call a case manager. That case manager, they respond out to the scene. Um, the officer does what we call a warm handoff. Um, the person gets turned over to the case manager. Um, they're not under arrest at this point. The person agrees that 
they're gonna they're gonna do a couple different things. Um, the first thing that they're gonna do, and the only thing they have to do to not ever get have those charges filed, is they're gonna do a, a full psych, psych, psychosocial assessment. An important aspect of the program is caseworkers meeting people where they're at. So they will ultimately go see the individual wherever they're living. So if the person's living under the bridge, they'll go in and they'll see them. And sometimes they'll do the assessment right there with them. Um, and the case managers are, are great at their job. Um, they know how to be able to, you know, um, really meet people where they're at and really be able to make sure that they can do that assessment in a way with individuals that um, aren't always in the best of states of mind based on substance use or mental illness and really to be able to um, work with the individual to get that assessment done and really figure out, like, what, what does this person need? Um, and I tell a lot of people across the country, especially police officers, because, you know, sometimes the, the harm reduction piece for law enforcement, it makes sense after you talk through it. Uh, but sometimes it's like, well, how can we be okay with somebody still using? And it's like, well, I'm not necessarily okay with the fact that at the end of the day, folks are still using. We want them to eventually stop. But if somebody's been homeless for 20 years, if somebody's been using drugs for 20 years, you know, we can't expect that their behavior change is going to happen overnight. It's going to take some time. And, you know, think about the fact that if you've been homeless for 20 years, are you overnight based on one contact with a case manager um, and based on identifying some different things that you need and some, some goals that we can come up with, are you automatically going to make that change? And the quick, the, you know, the answer is, of course, no, it's going to take time. It's not going to happen good, overnight. Yeah, yeah very yeah. good point. I talked to Chief Cox about the win or the benefit to the community of getting someone to agree to the social psycho assessment. For that assessment, as we do have some people that say, I want, I want treatment. So the first diversion that ever took place in Albany, the gentleman had a, uh, I'll give you a real life scenario because I think it helps out. So this gentleman, we, we had opened up some of the different criteria in Albany. We included um, things like shoplifting because we knew that one of the drivers of our low level crimes to include petty larceny, which is shoplifting in New York, um, included um, things like substance use, so ultimately we had a guy who had had a, uh, a really bad substance use disorder with heroin. Um, he had been arrested something like 44 times, convicted 22 times. He had a three to $400 a day substance use disorder with heroin. He was stealing to support that. Um, he gets caught shoplifting. Officers come to the scene. They talk to him. They find out what his criminal history is. He tells them that he had been in the methadone program before it had helped him out. He was interested in getting, getting back to methadone. Now, Albany, just like a lot of other places, you know, their treatment on demand is just not there. There's a waiting list for methadone programs. Um, ultimately, they decide to divert him. They have a case manager come out. Case manager works with him, gets his assessment done. He identifies a number of things that he ultimately wants to work on. The first thing was treatment. He wanted to be in a methadone program. Um, but to get him into a clinic was going to take some time. Um, there are about 750 slots available in two methadone clinics in the city of Albany. Those slots, there's anywhere from a 60-person to 100-person waiting list on any given day uh, within the city. They, they, unfortunately, those clinics just don't serve the city of Albany. They serve about a 60-mile radius around the city. Um, so this gentleman, he, he had to go on a waiting list. So while, you know, he's waiting for that slot to open, the case manager worked with him on a number of other things, including uh, primary health care, 
um, identification that wound up actually being a, a large barrier to getting him into um, services was that he had no identification. Of course, he had nothing um, to use to establish his identification other than his fingerprints to uh, to, to establish who he was. Um, he had had, um, ultimately at the end of the day, he got diverted on April 3rd of 2016. You know, the win is this. He gets diverted on April 3rd of 2016. Um, the case manager worked her tail off to get him into treatment. Um, ultimately, he did wind up going to a methadone, methadone uh, program. Um, he also wound up getting housing. He also got reunited with his family. Um, and he is not, to our knowledge, committed another crime since then. Um, he did relapse. He did ultimately wind up, um, not that long ago, relapsing. He called his case manager right away. Um, to report that, and he is now um, had services and events um, based on that. But when we talk about um, what the win is, the win is definitely the fact that um, lower police contacts, so so we know that folks that are involved in lead don't have a, as many police contacts. Now, that doesn't mean right away. Um, through time, though, that does happen. We know that in Seattle, when they did their first outcome evaluation, there was a 58% reduction in crime, um, in recidivism, um, for folks that were involved in lead compared to those that were just arrested and sent through the system as normal. Um, we know that the cost of having a participant in lead is much lower than the cost of sending somebody to jail. Um, you know, the average, uh, cost of jail through the country, throughout the country, I think is like $35,000 a year in New York. That's a more than $70,000 a year to keep somebody in jail. Um, it, it's way lower than that to keep somebody out and have the services provided. Um, we know that from our participants and talking to our participants, um, when we talk to them about why is it that you stay engaged and lead, um, they specifically talk about the fact that they are engaged more in lead because of the way they are treated. Seattle has had this up and rolling since 2011. What have been some of the success stories, either there or in your uh, home state? Um, what we see is that we have many, many individuals that either weren't engaged with services because they didn't know the services were there or were frustrated with the services, so they disengaged from those services um, and then got so far away from them um, that they were no longer receiving anything. So what we see is that within about an eight month period, we start to see a turnaround in individuals' lives. So uh, Seattle had this, because just to give you an idea how far um, some people are um, away from help, I'll, I'll give you a, a, one that took an awful long time. So Seattle had an individual um, that was homeless. He was living in a parking garage, um, had some substance use issues, had some mental illness issues, um, he ultimately got diverted. Um, at the end of the day, case manager started working with him, um, got him a bunch of services, a bunch of things he identified. And at the, uh, you know, all of us of course would say, well, housing is the biggest issue because he's living in a parking garage. Um, eventually get him housing. Um, he wound up, it was a struggle to get him. It was more of a struggle to get him from the parking garage into the apartment that he now had than to get him the housing slot. And that was because for 20 years he had lived in a parking garage and that to him was his home. Um, that years? was where he lived. Yeah, wow. 20 years. Wow. 
So, you know, there's individuals out there that are lost. So the win was over time, um, that case manager, and here's why lead works. Um, the case manager came up with a plan to work with that individual, um, to get him into that apartment where they said, okay, slowly we're going to get you into the apartment. So how about for this week, we have you stay at the apartment one night. Okay. That worked. Okay. How about next week we stay in the apartment two nights. Okay. We'll do that for a few weeks. See how that goes. And then eventually over a period of six or eight months, they finally got him staying full time into that apartment. But that took a long time. I wondered about the cost of the program. As far as a budget goes, the things that we, we tell folks that they should do is, first of all, they should hire a project director. Um, this, this, we look at, at LEAD as a collaborative, so we do not look at LEAD as being owned by any one entity. So most um, LEAD programs have a mem- memorandum of understanding that's signed off by a number of different entities that have involvement. So usually the city, city government and county government are part of that. Um, the police department, um, the sheriff's office, the district attorney's office, um, they're, they're all part of that. There's usually a civil rights component that's part of this. So usually a civil rights group is part of it. We, we definitely believe that the community needs to be completely engaged in this. So we want the community involved in it. Um, so they're all part of it. But because there's no one agency that we say owns this, um, we'd like to have a project director that works um, they can work for either one of those agencies or for an independent agency. Um, in Seattle, they work for the Public Defenders Association, which is, does not do public defender work, um, but they were one of, one of the founding agencies for LEAD. Um, and ultimately, that project director um, oversees the day-to-day operations. So everybody that's on the, uh, that ultimately is on the um, memorandum of understanding, they all have busy jobs. You know, we certainly can't expect the, the chief of police in a, in a city to, to run lead. So the project director oversees day-to-day operations. So that's a cost of depending on what, uh, where you are at in this country, it's not a huge cost, but that's, you know, somewhere between a hundred, 150,000, including fringe benefits. Um, and then case managers, we look at case managers anywhere from, uh, for, for as far as participants, two case managers at a 25 to one ratio. So for every 25 active participants, you need one case manager. So depending on the size of your jurisdiction, depends on how many case managers you need. Um, and usually you build that out as it comes where you get funding case managers. Um, you can get it from a lot of different places. There's obviously uh, city and County, um, budgets, but there's also, um, grants that are available. There's also Medicaid expansion states that have been able to use Medicaid funding to pay for case management. Um, there's also foundations that are out there that have been able to pay for it. Um, we do know that there is a, a cost savings. So if you can take the cost savings that you have um, and put it on the front end, case managers don't, they should get paid a lot more than they do. They don't get paid, a, paid all that much money um, at the end of the day for what they, what they bring to the table. Um, but when you look at that number, depending on the size of your city and how many people you're going to serve, um, you can grow that out slowly. So uh, in the city of Albany, we started out with one case manager. We're now at, I want to say five. Um, the city of Seattle, um, they're at they're at around 30 case managers now. So they, they started out much slower, much, much smaller than that, but they've been in existence the longest. Um, but we have some places, we have a few um, cities that are as small as 15,000 people all the way up to the second largest city in the country, LA. So we have, um, it, it depends on where you're at, uh, how many people you're going to serve. 
but you can do this anywhere from a budget of $100,000 to a budget of $3 million. Next, we talk about the support provided by the national team. So in Northeast Ohio, if there's a community that wanted to work with you, what would they do? So if they reach out to us, um, what we will do is we will uh, provide assistance that includes a simple conversation about what it takes, um, what lead is, uh, a little background of things about like what we did today, um, who they let them know who they need at the table, give them some education on best ways to engage those folks, um, give them some material on what lead is, what lead is not. Um, we have some uh, model policies and model um, practices that we can give folks. We also have examples of policies from other agencies that are involved. Um, some of our sites have given permission for us to be able to, to give that stuff out. Um, we then will sometimes help conduct a stakeholder meeting. So uh, sometimes folks have us come in, we can do that in person, but sometimes folks just have us do that on a teleconference. Um, where we'll talk with all the stakeholders and kind of talk through lead so folks can ask all the questions they need because obviously it's a um, there's a lot of things to, to, to come through. Um, and then we can ultimately, if folks say, hey, yes, this is something we want to do, we can help provide assistance, you know, all the way through the, going from that exploring to that, to being an operation to include, uh, assisting with training law enforcement and case managers, um, and to, uh, to helping folks through the process of developing their policies and procedures. We talked about something that I found unique about the program. It's ongoing national coordination. So what happened is uh, in Seattle, they had, when Seattle started because of capacity reasons, um, they had what was called a red light day, green light day. Basically on a green light day, a case manager was available so they could they would come out and do the diversion. On a, on a red light day, there was no case manager available, so they would just make an arrest. Well, very quickly, um, uh, very quickly, people on the street actually learned when they, that, you know, there was a difference in days. So they had a woman come up to a couple of the officers and say, is today one of those days that if I, if, if you were to arrest me, you could get me help. <laughs> and they were like, yeah. And she was like, okay, I'll be back. She comes back with a piece of crack in her hand and says, okay, arrest me and get me help. So wow. they go back to the, yeah. So they go back to their, to the work group and they're like, um, hey, do we have to wait till somebody commits a crime? So they came up with what was called a social contact referral. And basically, basically it's if, it, if it's somebody who would, um, who would fit the criteria, who would fit the criteria normally, they can refer in. And, and because they haven't committed a crime, obviously there's nothing holding over their head. They just go out and they'll do outreach and they'll offer the program to them. The person has to do everything still have to do everything, but obviously there's no, there's, you know, there's no, uh, <clears throat> there's nothing there for if the person doesn't do their assessment. While the program is a diversion program for low-level criminal offenses, they also have an alternate way into the program that's called social contact referral. But I have seen LEAD help transform uh, the city of Albany when I was there as the, as the police chief, and I've seen it now take hold in a number of cities across the country, and I've seen it changing a, a culture of not just law enforcement, but other agencies who re recognize now the role that they play uh, in dealing with these situations. So uh, please uh, look further into it, and uh, I look forward to helping anybody that would be interested in uh, exploring it. We've been joined today by Brendan Cox, the director of the Policing Strategies for the LEAD National Support Bureau. Since the first pilot initiative in Seattle, Washington in 2011, 
The LEAD program has expanded to communities throughout our country. By the end of 2018, 50 communities will have LEAD programs up and running. These communities are joined together in support of one another and coordinated by a national support team that's making a difference in the opioid epidemic. My name is Greg McNeil. I'm the founder of Cover 2 Resources. Thank you for joining us for this Cover 2 PPT podcast. That's people, places, and things making a difference in the opioid epidemic. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of the Cover 2 Resources podcast. This episode is a production of Cover 2 Resources and is made possible by listeners like you. If you'd like to donate or to sponsor a future podcast, please visit cover2.org. As always, thank you for listening. Together, we can make a difference in the opioid epidemic, one life at a time.